Welcome back to our study of Ecclesiastes. Last time, we um, just <clears throat> introduced um, a little bit of the, the two um, hypothetical arguments that the writer of Ecclesiastes raises. And... <clears throat> One of those arguments is in 16 through 22, verses 16 through 22 of, verse, uh, of chapter uh, 3. And the other, <clears throat> the second uh, argument or pushback um, to what the writer of Ecclesiastes has said thus far is found in all of chapter 4. And um, so let's dig in. Let's read uh, 16 through 22 of chapter 3. Furthermore, <clears throat> I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? And I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? So this is the first objection to what the writer of, uh, of Ecclesiastes has said um, just before this, which is basically celebrating God's sovereignty. That's the first half of chapter 3. And then a little bit into the middle of, uh, of the chapter, chapter 3, he then um, gives us his notion of, of the goal of what God has done, God's project, God making the world um, really unfit for man. And of course that was uh, after the fall, and as we have uh, said in previous uh, lessons, the fall happened and then God um, did something with that fall. For one thing, not he didn't remove it, I mean the the curse and 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 sins the outcome of sin having corrupted the world he he didn't he didn't mitigate it he didn't remove it in fact he turned it into basically a a testimony of himself and we've been calling that God's project or uh, God's riddle his conundrum that life is broken and uh, as we've dealt with in previous lessons that's apparent to to to, to everyone no one has to think very hard that life, the human condition, is not what it was intended to be. And it's not, uh, even if you're not a Christian, or even if you're not a religious person, whatever religion, you know that there's uh, something not quite right about life, something that's a little bit off uh, with the human condition. And the writer of Ecclesiastes has um, given us an answer 
just to do a little bit of review, he's given us an answer in chapter 2, verse 24, where he begins to say the role of man, what's expected of man, is to accept what God has done, to accept it. And um, this is the right thing for man to do, to give God his due. And in chapter 3, the writer of Ecclesiastes goes on to describe God's godness as sort of a, a, a celebration of who God is and why he should be honored, why he should be obeyed, why he should be uh, feared, which, which means basically knowing the difference between him and us. That's what fearing God means. Um, so then we go into uh, the middle of chapter 3 and, at verse 16, and what we have at, at verse 16 is the, is the beginning of the writer of Ecclesiastes raising two hypothetical questions. And the first question he raises, we could entitle it, we could title it, um, God, uh, where's the fairness? God, where's the fairness? That'd be 16 through 22, verses 16 through 22 of chapter 3. So, so the hypothetical uh, pushback that the writer raises, uh, much as do many teachers of, of, of many sorts, including the Apostle Paul, um, who often in his epistles gave doctrine, and then he would, um, in the midst of all that, he would raise issues with the doctrine that people are hearing and try to cover those things, try to anticipate objections. So this is the first objection. And this is a <clears throat> these two objections, first one, God, where's the fairness? And the second one, which is all of chapter 4, uh, we could call, God, are you even there? And these two objections are really sort of a transition period in the book of Ecclesiastes where the writer of Ecclesiastes is moving from making his case and into this transition which is raising uh, issues that could argue against his case, and he deals with those. Um, and then... After he does that, beginning in chapter 5, he will leave all that behind. What he will do from chapter 5 uh, through chapter 11 is he will uh, basically give us a manual on life, living life in the face of inequities, in the face of these questions he's risen, uh, how to live faithfully toward God and with God. And I think that's going to be very interesting for us. So, uh, chapter 3, 16 through 22. Um, God, uh, why is there iniquity? Where's the fairness? You can see that because he says, I've seen under the sun, verse 16, in the place of justice there is wickedness. In the place of righteousness there's wickedness. He says there's wickedness all over. This is a common complaint, isn't it? with many? Well, if there's a God, and if he's as good as you say, and if he has done all these things, you know, in love and for a reason, and he's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving, why is there wickedness? Shouldn't this be a perfect world? If a perfect God is in charge of it, shouldn't there be a 
a perfect world. That's not really um, a very sensible argument when it comes to knowing how God reveals himself in the Bible, but it is a common argument. And that's the first one that uh, the writer of Solomon, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, raises. He also addresses this, and you can see that in uh, verse 11, which of course is actually above our current text. It's earlier in our current text, but let's look at it anyway. Verse 11, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. The early part of that verse is what we're focusing on. He has made everything appropriate in its time. So Different Bible versions have different things there. Uh, no matter what word is, is put in place, this would be basically saying perfect, that God has done things perfectly. A perfect God does things perfectly. Well, he gives another he gives a reply to this when he says in verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God is so worked that men should fear him. Here he's saying that God is wise. God has done this correctly. He's um, done things perfectly verse 11, and even actually verse 1, you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, he has said the same thing. There is an appointed time for everything, and time for every event of heaven. God is in control. God knows what he's doing. Uh, and he acts perfectly. And then 14, that God, God's projects, God's uh, acts, will remain forever, and they can't be changed. You can't add to it. You can't subtract to it. He's very wise. F later on the Chapter chapter 3, verse 17, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. Here the writer of Ecclesiastes is giving the reply to the hypothetical question, the hypothetical complaint, that um, God will judge. God sees. God sees what's going on. He sees and he has his reasons for allowing it to, to be what it is, but he sees it. He takes it to account. It's not getting past him. He's not ignoring it. He's not unknowing of it. He sees it. We see another piece of this later in Ecclesiastes in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 12, it reads, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, Still I know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear him openly. Again, he's saying that in, in reply to the objector who will say, well, you know, things don't look very fair in this world. Things don't look very equitable. You have people who love God and people who don't love God, and in the end they look the same. They look the same. There's no difference in not only so much in their works, but how they die. Because this, this 16 through 22 is basically how a person dies. And, and when they die, you know, what happens? Do people who love God, do they go to heaven? And do people who don't love God, do they not go to heaven? Do they go to hell? Um, that's, that's, what's, that's, the, that's the thought at play in 16 through 22. In fact, look at this. He says, 
the objector says in verse 20, all go to the same place. All came from the dust and all returned to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? Do you see? Heaven versus hell. Um, this is obviously not the writer of Ecclesiastes speaking. It can't be. Because, as we mentioned earlier, over in chapter 12, the very last chapter of Ecclesiastes, um, in verse 7, we read this, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. If the writer of Ecclesiastes believes what he wrote in 12.7, then he couldn't be speaking of and believing what is said in verses 20 through 21 of chapter 3. So it's the, it's the contender, it's the objector who's saying this. And the answer that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives to this is found in verse 18. I said to myself, concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order that they may see that they are but beasts. He's saying one of the reasons that there's inequity in the world, one of the reasons that good people don't seem to just live really comfortable lives and bad people not comfortable, it's a mix. It's a, it's, it's, it's a mix-up. He says because he wants people to have enough time throughout their life, he wants people to have during their sojourn, during their time on earth, he wants them to know just exactly the sinner that they are, just exactly the individual they are, that they are but beasts. That is obviously not literal. It's a metaphorical statement. They are just animals. Which, by the way, you see also in, I believe it's uh, James. No, it's Peter, I'm sorry. Um, in, the, in one of Peter's epistles, one of Peter's letters, he says that unbelievers who, uh, you know, just live their lives in, in sin and in wickedness live as if they are unreasoning animals unreasoning animals. In other words, um, animals, not human beings. So the first, um, the first objection is, Lord, where's the fairness? God, where's the fairness? Uh, there doesn't seem to be much difference between righteous people and unrighteous, godly and ungodly, um, people who are good and people who are not good. You treat them the same. They die the same. They don't look any different. And we've seen the answers to that. Um, that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives that um, God is perfect, God is wise, God sees, and God allows people to live like animals so they will actually come to realize what they are, the sinners that they are. All right, let's read chapter 4. <clears throat> then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living who were still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. 
And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, nor yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king and no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has not come out of prison, I'm sorry, for he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. So that's the whole chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now what's difficult about this chapter is even in many verses of the Bible, there are several paragraph breaks here. There's a, I, have, I have at least four paragraph breaks. So it's a somewhat discontinuous um, a treatise. It's a somewhat uh, discontinuous discussion. But what he's basically saying, again, this is the writer of Ecclesiastes po- postulating, posting a, an objection, a hypothetical objection. And this objection is basically, God, are you even there? And the basic subject of chapter 4 is, is it has a couple of subjects, but he begins with oppression. Man versus man. In fact, you could really call the whole chapter of chapter 4 the uh, the view of man as being really pretty low and pretty despicable. Man is very, very despicable. Man is, man is pretty bad. Pretty bad. That's chapter four. But he, but he, but he, he describes it. The objector describes man from that basis. He describes it in a few different ways, and he begins by saying oppression. Then I looked again, verse one, at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and so on. He's saying God, or the objector, writer of Ecclesiastes, who's taken the place of the of the objector. He's saying hypothetically, to the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's saying, well, okay, you say God is good, you say God is powerful, you say God is uh, sovereign, God has done these things, and all of that, but I see, objection number one, I see a lot of inequity, I see a lot of um, things that just don't seem to be right, they're not, God's not running the world the way I should think he should, and then the second objection is, I'm not even sure God is there. I'm not even sure there is a God. Because why would there be so much trauma, so much bad things that happen, and most of them happen from man? That's chapter 4. 
So that's the second objection. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes is posing the question, and then he actually gives a reply to it. Uh, this second question and his reply, the reply is not as satisfying as we would like, but here's what it is. So look at verse 4. I've seen every, uh, and I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor, this to his vanity and striving after wind. Now, this vanity and striving after wind, those two used together, he, doesn't, he hasn't done that often. He's, he has said vanity several times, and he has said striving after wind several times, but he's only said uh, vanity and striving after wind together a few times. It's a very powerful combination. And what he's basically saying is, he's saying yes. He's saying yes, everything is about rivalry. Everything between two human beings on earth really is about rivalry, no matter what it is. Business, relationships, friendships, marriage, you know, whatever. It's all steeped in rivalry. People are always trying to get one over on the other. And that's basically true. Anybody who's observed life at all knows that this is, this is essentially true. And the answer that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives is, what? He says at the very end, this too is vanity, striving after wind. He's saying, yeah, it's true. The world is broken. And that's not the way things are supposed to be. This is not supposed to be. Job said the same thing. Job said, I don't have the verse in front of me, but Job said in the book of Job, he said that just as the embers from a fire rise upward, just as quickly and as easily and as and as and as repeatedly and 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 you know predictably, man fights with another. Job says, just as much as the embers float upper from a fire, uh, so man uh, contends with man. Man has reason. Man finds a reason, finds an excuse to contend with his fellow man. This is how this is how people are, definitely. The next thing he'll say, verse 5, again, this is Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, who's actually replying to these objections. And so we have that in verse 5. A very interesting verse. Actually, verses 5 and 6. Very interesting verses. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. What is that? This is another indication that the writer of Proverbs and the writer of Ecclesiastes could be the same. That is, Solomon. The writer of Ecclesiastes could be Solomon. We don't know for sure. We can't be dogmatic. We made that point in the introduction. But he's used this phrase, folds his hands. That phrase is used only three times in all of the Bible. And the other two times are both in Proverbs. And what it basically means is giving up. It means giving up. And in the context here, it means more than that. It means that the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, okay, you have said, review, let's review again, you have said the first objection, you said, you know, inequity, unfairness just seems to just be rampant, and I don't understand why that is if there's a good God. And then he says in the second one, God, are you even there? Is there, even, is there even a God because of such 
harmful things that men do to each other. Dumb, sinful, stupid things. And we'll see that, actually described that way a little bit later. And he says, okay, you're saying that. But what, what would you rather do? You're going to give up on God? You're going to say there's no God? Okay. So now what are you going to do? You're just going to pull back in life? Are you going to retract from society? Are you going to check out of society and just not engage? You're going to live a, as a hermit? You know, like a, like a Howard Hughes? Are you going to check out? Is that what you want to do? And he says, look at verse 6. And verse 6 is, he's quoting, the writer of Ecclesiastes is quoting the person who's saying this as saying something else. And that is, one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after win. It's like the person is saying, living small is better than the hassle. Living on a deserted island with nobody else, so to speak, is better than living in a world of harshness and oppression and inequity and injustice. That's what he's saying. You're going to, you know, go build a cabin in the woods where nobody else lives and not see another human being for the next 20 years? Is that what you're going to do? That's what he says. In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to actually expand on this notion. He's going to expand on this idea of pulling back in life. And he's going to explain two ways that people do that. And he does that in chapter 7. And we're just going to, you know, give a little spoiler here, and we'll, then we'll go back to chapter 4. But in chapter 7, beginning at um, verse 16, well, let's go ahead and start at 15. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Verse 16, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? This is a very enigmatic verse or passage, very enigmatic passage. What he's saying is, if you want to leave God out of the picture, if you want to accuse God of not only not being good and wise and loving, but just to, but even say he's not there, that he is absent. He's an absentee father, which is a very emotional thing for many. Then what you're left with is what two people will do when that happens. One is you'll pull back out of life. And that's where he says, do not be excessively wicked, do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? In other words, pull all the way back out of life pretend there's no God, live as if it doesn't matter that there, that there is a God and, and that we're his creation, and live as if you are dead. That's what he means by die before your time. Live as if you're dead. Just check out. Just forget the whole thing. Now the first part of that where he says do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise, why should you ruin yourself? He's saying the other thing you can do if, again, you want to leave God out, is you can essentially regard yourself as one of the exceptions. You're going to call yourself one of the exceptions to this rule. You're going to say, well, everybody else is 
after each other. Everybody else, you know, is dog-eat-dog, dog, you know, kind of thing. But me, I'm above that. I'm above that. And I might even, you know, find myself a religion where I can practice my, my superiority. How good I am. How great I am. And how much I'm above the whole fray, the whole world. And, uh, you know, write books on how to find the meaning of life. That's what he's saying. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. He's saying, if you're going to leave God out, two things are going to confront you. You're either going to pull back entirely out of, out of just terror and, and, and dissatisfaction and frustration, or you're going to go the opposite direction, and you're going to become quasi-religious. You're going to become some sort of false, hyper-religious person with no relationship with God at all, but just a big pretense of, of uh, having a real life. Now, it goes on in chapter 7. In 18 of chapter 7, he says, It is good you keep one thing and not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both. He says, he's not saying pick a middle ground. That's what it reads like. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, um, come forth with both of them. Is he saying, overcome both of these. Vanquish both of these extremes, both of these evils. Don't do either. Don't do either one of them. So back to chapter 4. And um, we have the two, we have the two uh, objections. And we have the two... Uh, replies that the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, gives. Uh, there's one more thing we want to look at, and that is beginning in chapter 13, uh, which is another paragraph break in, in most Bible versions. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes actually um, is still hypothetically speaking for the person who's pushing back, the, object, the person who's objecting. And he says he's still in the same vein of people doing bad things to people. But here he says something a little surprising. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he's come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There's no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. There's that, there's that couplet again, vanity and striving after wind. A very severe conclusion on the part of the writer of Ecclesiastes. What is he saying here? He's saying that not only are people hurting other people, but they do it stupidly. They do it in a very dumb way. They do it as if they have no brains. He's saying wisdom is rare, verses 13 through 16. Wisdom is rare, and people aren't very bright. Look at 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. Many people act like they can't learn from life. They can't even learn the basic things that, that living life teaches them. They're not teachable. This is one of his objections, the, the person who's objecting to the writer of Ecclesiastes. Why are there stupid people? And he goes on, when, he, when you see things like, um, 
he's come out of prison to become king, even though he is born poor. I've seen all the living under the sun, thronged to the side of the second lad. There's no end to all the people. He's saying, why don't people get wiser with age? You would think they would, but they don't. Generally speaking, old age does not equate wisdom. And that shouldn't be. There's something wrong with life. There's something wrong with a world in which that doesn't happen. And he even says, why doesn't a humble beginning produce wisdom? This is the person who's pushing back against the writer of Ecclesiastes, saying, well, you know, here's things I've observed. I think, uh, you know, God must be on vacation because the world just isn't being run the way I would run it. Okay, so that's... Uh, that's um, what we have been calling the teacher's complaint. And what it really is, again, is the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, segueing. He's doing a little, a little funny little thing here, and he's using it as a segue into what will be the body of the whole book, and the, the body of the message. And that is how to live life in a world that is inhospitable, inequitable, unfair, um, you know, and all those things. It's broken. It's nasty. Um, this segue is essentially a hypothetical uh, pushback, hypothetical objection to, to what has come before, which is basically chapters 1 through 3, where he makes the case that life is broken. He makes the, the case that life is uh, meant to be broken because it's meant to wake us up to the existence of God, and then he celebrates God himself, and then we have the objections which question those things, which question and, and push back and try to overcome what the writer of Ecclesiastes has said thus far. And um, this is, uh, this is uh, these are the two objections, and these are the, the answers that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives. Now, from chapter 5 onward, we have essentially a guidebook. From chapters 5 through 11, we have a guidebook. And what's going to happen is the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to say, this is what God expects of you. This is how to live in the fear of God. This is how to live in a world that, yes, it is messed up. It's not what it should be. And yes, God knows it. In fact, God made sure it was this way, even though really man turned it into corrupt, in a corrupted world. God made sure that it stayed corrupted and and made sure that that bugged us, made sure that it made us indignant and made us frustrated, but he did it to make us think of him. And so from 5 through 11, chapters 5 through 11, he's going to say how we should be living. And of course, um, the things he's going to suggest in terms of how to live really are things that only Christians can do. So he's really speaking to Christians in chapters 5 through 11. Although the writer of Ecclesiastes had as an audience both non-believers and believers, there's a lot in the middle there in that spectrum, including non-believers who are looking and searching, uh, and believers who are frustrated and angry with God. There's a lot of kind of things in between. So it's all those people. And so don't look at chapters 5 through 11 as being only for Christians, but it's really for, for everyone. But it's going to be basically a rule book and how to get through life, how to navigate life, how to live in this world that is not really meant for us. It's, it's, it was originally, you look at Genesis chapters 1 through 2, 
chapters 1 and 2, it was originally meant for us, but now it's not. Now it's a prison. Now it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a harsh, uh, inhospitable, unfair, bad thing for man in this world. And he's going to say, well, here's how you get through it. Here's how you live. And I'm looking forward to going through that. When we get to um, the end of that, which will be mid, mid to late chapter 11, and then on to the last chapter 12, he'll change his course a little bit, and he'll start once again coming back to his original thesis and making a plea, a call to faith, really, a call to belief, a call to giving in to the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to us to pay for the sin in our place and to not only pay for that by dying and suffering, uh, but also rising again to prove that life is the outcome of that. Life for himself, but also life for us. And uh, that's the message um, that we'll be headed toward as we move along in this uh, book. Hope you're enjoying it and um, catch you next time. Believe God.